Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... Uh, you know... Long, long fight for us, long battle. We should continue to fight for country, especially my grandfather country and other family members' country, to stop this new fracking. We, we never thought about, we never heard about fracking. Traditional owners from the Beetaloo Basin have submitted opposition to the Tambaran Resources fracking plants. As they continue fight for country, what are their biggest concerns and are they being heard? Also, new data is in showing how Australians are using legal and illicit drugs in their daily lives, which ones are most used. And later in the show... Creating a space for them to express themselves creatively because of the nature of the game. What it also allows us to do is create game mechanics that educate... As the dice rolls on 50 years, could the popular Dungeons & Dragons offer benefits for people who are neurodivergent or living with disability? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcast. Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the LGBTQI plus community is calling on New South Wales police to start moving quickly on recommendations from the state's gay hate inquiry. Earlier this week, the board deemed it inappropriate after a serving police officer allegedly murdered a gay couple in Sydney last week. The New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties this week hosted a forum called Queers in Conversation, where participants discussed the relationship between police and the LGBTI plus community. National Radio News reporter Laura Devoy asked past immediate president of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, Josh Pallas, his involvement with the forum. So the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties has been wanting to have a conversation about policing in the queer community for a long time and with Australian Lawyers for Human Rights and FBI Radio, we um, pulled together a panel to chat about policing, protest and Mardi Gras in about January of this year. Um, And the forum took on greater significance given the tragic murder last week in Sydney. The theme of the forum was continuity and change, protest and policing and the Sydney Mardi Gras. Now, I understand that was decided before what happened last week. How was that theme reinforced during the forum? The theme we pulled together because of long-standing interest between legal organisations and policing practices, particularly directed at marginalised communities. And I think given the fast-changing events over the past couple of days, we didn't expect when we set the theme was that a lot of people with lived experience of adverse interactions with police came along and generously shared their experiences that they've had as queer people who have interacted with police. And so I suppose the relationship between police and the queer community became more foregrounded than we expected it to initially be. You know, we were sort of angling towards um, something that was more a conversation about policing of protest, including the Mardi Gras, but it became more a conversation in general about the way that policing interacted with the community. What was the general consensus on the decision to ask police not to march at Mardi Gras this weekend? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So there were definitely strongly held views on both sides, but there were certainly more people in support of police being uninvited this weekend. And people had a range of reasons for that. So there were people who thought as a mark of respect to um, the grieving community, it was important that police didn't march this time. And then there are people who have held very firm, long-standing views that police should never march in Mardi Gras and that was actually a mistake 26 years ago to let them in. Yeah, but then there were also people on the other side who were saying it's important to build bridges with the police and recognise that there are people attempting to change and shift cultures. Yeah, there were definitely more people in support of the decision to uninvite them. What would you say to members of the New South Wales Police Force who are also members of the LGBTQI plus community who would want to march this weekend? Yeah, that's a question that I thought a lot about over the last couple of days because I'm a practising lawyer and I used to be a prosecutor and I knew that when I became a prosecutor I made a decision that would alienate me from parts of the community but I made the decision knowing that, you know, given that as someone who also advocates for justice reform, puts you in a weird position where from time to time you're advocating for people to go to jail. And I think I would say the same applies to police. You know, when we make decisions about what we do in our lives, our decisions are often sort of value-laden within communities. So I hope that LGBTQI identifying police officers at least understand why there is some sentiment from the community. Would there be an issue with those police officers marching in a non-police capacity? That's also an interesting question that a lot of people have different views about. So, I mean, the Council for Civil Liberties perspective is that the decisions around who gets to march in Mardi Gras are decisions for Mardi Gras and Mardi Gras members itself. But certainly at the event last night, there were different views about that. You know, there are some people who think that people who are serving police officers should not march at all. But there are others who say, um, why should people who are effectively a public servant get pride of place within a march when, you know, they could also march with their queer sports team or with a queer support service? Talking about systemic failures of policing, the New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb has been at pains this week to stress positive changes within the police force in the past 50 years. How did speakers at the forum react to her statements? I think there's been a lot of anger directed at Karen Webb, in part her use of language. So particularly the crime of passion comment was definitely not well received within the community. I think there's also just a sense of frustration that something like the Commissioner's apology didn't come with any commitment to actually implement any of the recommendations of the special inquiry, the SACAR inquiry into LGBTQI hate crimes. Past immediate president of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, Josh Pallas, speaking with National Radio News' Laura Devoy. New data shows how Australians are using legal and illicit drugs in their daily lives. Long-running campaigns to educate on the dangers of smoking appear to be paying off, with less than 1 in 10 people using tobacco daily. At the same time, vaping has shot up and there's little change in the use of alcohol and illicit drugs. But as Matthew Ward-Ages reports, there are rising trends that have some experts increasing calls for harm minimisation. Tobacco use is down again but vaping is up. 
That's the headline data to emerge from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare's latest National Drug Strategy Household Survey, which measures attitudes and consumption habits of legal and illicit drugs across the country. It marks the first survey where less than 10% of the population has reported using tobacco. So having a reduction like that is very welcome indeed. That's Emeritus Professor Alex Wodak, a retired physician who led the drug and alcohol service at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney for 30 years. At the same time that smoking has declined, vaping has seen a surge. In 2019, about 2% of Australians were regular vapers. It's shot up to 7% of the population in the following three years. It appears to be a trend that's following the lead of other markets. What we've seen is a very strong pattern all over the world, and now reflected also in Australia, is that when vaping starts rising rapidly, smoking starts falling rapidly. And this is because the two commodities, smoking and vaping, are economic substitutes. You do one or you do the other. Some people, for a brief period, will do both, but generally people will do one or the other. And so we're seeing smokers switching to vaping in record numbers. Now, this is a terrific thing, wonderful development, because vaping is less than 5% of the risk of smoking. Overall, there have been few changes since the last survey three years ago. Alcohol remains the most commonly used drug, Three quarters of Australians have had a drink in the last year, and about a third still drink to levels that put their health at risk. Illicit drug use is also occurring at similar levels. One in ten Australians still smoke marijuana, and cocaine is used by about one in 20. Dig deeper, though, and the data shows subtle changes in drug use across age groups and between the sexes. Alcohol might be the most commonly used drug in Australia, but it's on the decline among younger age groups. Those 18 to 24-year-olds are the least likely group to smoke as well, but they're also the largest users of e-cigarettes and illicit drugs. About half of young people have used illicit drugs in their lifetime, and that's a figure being driven by an increased use of illicit drugs among young women, who are now as likely as men to use marijuana and more likely to use cocaine or any illicit drugs at all. Stephen Bright is a senior lecturer in addiction at Edith Cowan University in Western Australia. I think it's difficult to explain. Looking at the history of smoking, it's been a male-dominated consumption of tobacco. However, once you hit the 60s, we we see parity with tobacco smoking among males and females. So it may just be a trend that's sort of moving toward that parity. It has to be looked at within the context of alcohol use among young people as well, which continues to be quite low. And we don't really understand what's even going on there, why young people are drinking so much less than ever. And the older cohorts, you know, you're 50, 55, 60 are drinking more than ever and certainly consuming more cannabis than ever before. But just talking about the change in illicit drug use and the increase in use among young females, I think understanding what's going on in that broader picture of substance use, um, looking at, at trends in alcohol is important, helping to understand that too. The report also highlights a growing acceptance for certain drugs and drug policies within the community. The Alcohol and Drug Foundation is a policy group that advocates for harm minimisation measures. 
Its knowledge manager is Robert Taylor. We have seen some really promising trends in the data. We see continuing increases in support for evidence-based policies to minimise harm in the community. While it's welcomed signs of public support for measures to promote drug safety, it's worried about data showing an increase in alcohol-related violence within the community. Overall, one in five people reported being verbally or physically abused or put in fear by someone under the influence of alcohol. That's about the same number as three years ago, but there's been a rise of those reports among women. 2.4 million reported experiencing harm from someone under the influence of alcohol in the last year. We do unfortunately continue to see unacceptably high levels of alcohol-related harm in the community. So we see about a third of Australians drinking over the national guidelines, so drinking more than four standard drinks on a single occasion or more than 10 in a week. And we've seen about one in five Australians experiencing harm from someone else who's under the influence of alcohol. So it's a mixed report. There's a lot of data where some things, yeah, we're seeing some positive improvements in public health, whereas other things we're still a bit concerned by. Emeritus Professor Alex Wodak ending that report from Matthew Ward-Ages. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Traditional owners from the Beetaloo Basin are concerned about the Tambaran Resources fracking plans and have submitted their opposition to the project. Their concerns are around gas drilling and water poisoning if the Northern Territory government goes ahead with the project, which is in the process of approval. The wise contributor from Nada Media, Asad Khan, asked Chair of Nadalingi, Native Title Aboriginal Corporation, and Jingali Elder Samuel Janamar Sandy how the project will affect their country. Yeah, it's gonna practically it's gonna destroy our culture and way of life on country. It's water is life. They they have a plan to install or put sitting well, Tamaran is doing. We try to oppose that, try to stop it, but people are mm-hmm. and it's been a long, long fight for us, long battle to continue. To fight for country, especially my grandfather country and other family members' country, to stop this new fracking. We, we never thought about, we never heard about fracking, about this new method of uh, mining. Then we finally realized, and we finally realized it was too late, it's, it's, it's really dangerous on country. Yes. Yeah. Water is the main source of it all and if if the water contaminated contaminated and where we all gotta live you know we have one earth and under mm. the, the, the underground aquifer it's like a bloodline that runs through like well this world we're living in we have a lot of veins but that including water aquifer it flows all around the world once they all once they all get contaminated there be no water to drink. Even even the non-indigenous people will have nothing. And it's pretty sad, you know. There's no other planet to live in. There's only one Earth. Water is source of all life, as we know it. Do you think the government is serious about this net zero carbon emission by 2050? Judging by the number of offshore mining companies given contract by the government. I think um, 
all these, all, all these things not happening, the fracking, all, it's all about money, young man. All about money. Money will destroy the country within the Beetle Basin, even all, all, all Australia. It's all about money. That's what it's all about. The government keeps on I mean, saying this will create sorry. jobs for the indigenous people and the local community. Do you, don't you think there can be other better ways to create jobs and help the community rather than destroying their land? Well, there's, there's lots, lots of ways. You can build a road, there's not a job for that, and build housing, and better health, and better education for the young generation what will come, and there's lots of ways to get money, you got, uh, you got, you know, for example, you put rangers on country, you have uh, land termination for capital, all that, we don't need money, mining, mining work, for indigenous folk that never works on our oil rig, pretty hard, it's very difficult job to work on uh, under those condi- conditions, it was pretty hard and you know you're gonna be on your on, on you're gonna be on your toe working 24/7. You're gonna be on a shift night after day after night after day. We have for a young indigenous man to get a job in the, in the fracking industry. So when they propose new fracking contracts or prospects, do they consult with the traditional landowners or just the government and those companies? Basically, between the government. And, and the companies, at the moment there's a proposal that's sitting in the anti-government pending when they're going to uh, start with this 15 well, you know? And as traditional owner of those within the Beetle Basin hasn't been consulted, we we got this news, you know, second-hand news. You know, we wasn't aware of it. And... The sad news came in, they're going to build another 15 wells. And the more wells they're going to build on it, it's going to be really dangerous. It's going to be, you know, like you put in a a top-end carbon bomb. Really, really dangerous on country. Jingali elder Samuel Janamar Sandy ending the report by Nada Media's Asad Khan. Featuring across a range of pop culture, including hit series Stranger Things, the timeless tabletop game Dungeons & Dragons celebrated its 50th anniversary this year. Known for its interactivity and role-playing, the game has attracted significant attention, showing a drastic increase in Google searches. But is it more than just a fantasy-based game? A number of industry experts suggest D&D can offer a range of therapeutic and pro-social benefits. But what can the game bring to therapy spaces for emotional health? And could it help people who are neurodivergent or living with disability? The Wire spoke with Dr. Susanna Emery to find out. 
when people think about D&D or Dungeons and Dragons, they think about people sitting around a table, maybe in costume, looking at dusty old books. That's not necessarily the case anymore. You can do that. We've got like online tools and systems that help us play D&D. What we're doing is we're engaging with these stories and working with a team to create our own new stories or our own experiences that happen outside of these story prompts. Dungeons and Dragons has soared in popularity, now attracting an estimated 50 million players worldwide. But over the past five decades, views of the game have varied. Once feared for its darker aesthetic, more recent years have seen the game in a new light. Embracing the tabletop adventure tale for its pro-social and shared storytelling. In the 90s, 80s, there was a huge misconception or uprising problem where it was called uh, the D&D problem. People were seeing D&D as something that was like demonic or satanic or was causing issues with the youth. Thankfully, I think we've moved past that now and we can see that there's so many like pro-social benefits to playing together and to telling these stories. Dr Emery says that TTRPGs like Dungeons & Dragons can be powerful in the therapy space. I look at how games can help us kind of learn new things and actually change the world. So Dungeons and Dragons or TTRPGs, which are tabletop role-playing games in general, are really, really powerful in that space. Recently, we made a white paper where we looked at what was existing in the research in that area, looking at D&D for neurodivergent people. And what we found was that, uh, well, there's not a huge amount of research in that area. There's significant research to show that it does have really positive effects. And one of the reasons that we think that that is, is this thing called social growth. It gives you an opportunity to engage with others in a context where you've got that storyline and you're working collaboratively. Over in Perth, registered counsellor Michael Keady uses Dungeons and Dragons during therapy-based programs. During these sessions, D&D creates a space for imagination to wander and social connections to cultivate. In a therapy setting, it varies from group to group. For a lot of groups, it's about the storytelling and bringing people together as a group of potentially peers, maybe even friends, and creating a space for them to express themselves creatively because of the nature of the game. What it also allows us to do is create game mechanics that educate and inform around mental health. When I first started working with young people, I worked with a lot of people who don't work at their most comfortable in a traditional teaching environment. I work with a lot of like, homeschooled people. When it comes to therapy, a number of modalities exist, from play-based to more conventional. Keedy says different therapies benefit different types of people. Different types of therapy work for different types of people. The play-based, something that's fun, something that's interesting, is really helpful, especially for uh, teens or other young people who often, when they're sitting one-on-one with an adult, usually, it's when they're in trouble. So they're already entering into a therapy room with this headspace of, if I'm sitting across from an adult one-on-one, it's usually when I'm in trouble at school. From unearthing treasure troves to traversing fantasy worlds and dungeons, players are encouraged to adopt an imaginary character led by a game master and, at times, a roll of the dice. Dr Emery says D&D highlights the value of difference. And when you play D&D, you create a character, and that character that you create has unique things about it. So it might be really charismatic, it might be really, really physically strong, it might be really fast. And you work in a team of others who have different strengths and different skills. And you'll find that as you work together as a team, 
through different points in playing the D&D game, through different parts of the story, you'll find those skills are valuable at different times. So it really kind of works to set this rhetoric in kind of the player's head that, wow, like there's all these different ways of solving problems and we can see everybody's varied skills are valuable in different ways. While hosting D&D groups, Keedy says there has been a number of benefits for players, including people who are neurodivergent. It can create a safe space for people without social pressure. And when we look at you know, neurodivergent people, specifically autistic people or ADHDers, we see a lot of what's called masking, and that's pretending performative conformity. It can be very taxing on the autistic mind, the autistic experience. Creating this group of like people who they can enjoy some time with, they can let their hair down, and they can actually be themselves. Registered counsellor Michael Keady speaking with The Wire. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between two SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.